Right. Keep uh, keep Romans 16 open and and we'll just be there today. This is not a, a part of a series. If you're part of our church, you've been here for a while. We actually finished a long four month series last week. And next week, as we kick off the new year, we're actually going to start a new series on Philippians. And so if you want to start reading Philippians, if you're going to be part of our church in this season, I would encourage you to do that. But today, just a standalone. And, and the goal is just to kind of cast some vision for hopefully who we are, certainly who we aspire to be. And uh, and so I want us to, to focus especially on Romans 16, the boring part. Um, most Christians, even though Romans is very popular, um, most Christians never really get to Romans 16, either from sheer exhaustion of stopping before you get to the 15, the first 15 chapters, or because it just doesn't seem very interesting compared to this stuff earlier on. Andy Crouch has said about Romans 16 that it is the least preached upon chapter in the most preached upon book in the entire Bible. And then he says this, and this is kind of in one sense, the goal that probably when we read this out loud, you're like, well, this is interesting. Here's some names of Christians who died 2000 years ago. Um, but Andy Crouch says this, and I think he's right, that Romans 16 is the most sociologically stunning chapter in the entire Bible in terms of what it shows us about what the early church was like. And so if you have your Bible open to Romans 16, jump back to Romans 1 real quick. Let's just notice this. Um, some of you, and, and I'm going to pretend that that a lot of you are not a part of our church yet. And, and maybe a lot of you have just moved to New York City to start college or grad school. Some of you have maybe just moved here to start working or others. You've been around for a while, but you're not sure if you're going to be part of our church or not. If that's not you, you can just pretend it is and, and kind of do this. But, but part of my um, goal today is just give the sense of, of who neighborhood church is, who we aspire to be. We would love for you to become part of our community if you're new to the city, if you're looking for a church. And, and when you work through Romans, you see kind of throughout the book, there, there's three main sections of Romans before you get to Romans 16. I'm not going to preach on Romans anytime in the near future. It's a really long book. I do love Romans, but it's a major book. Some of you, if you've moved to New York City or you're looking for a church, what you are primarily looking for, and if you if this is you, maybe you've already looked up our church website is, are they orthodox or not? Do they believe the right things? And you can go, you can check out our church website. We'll talk about that later. And if that's you, you love Romans one through eight, because it's all about theology. It's all about um, understanding what the gospel is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus with respect to who God is, the nature of sin, the nature of grace, the nature of faith and obedience, the Holy Spirit. Others of you, what you're primarily looking for is, do I feel like I can connect with God experientially and emotionally during the worship? And so you're kind of a Holy Spirit person and you're looking for that. And Romans 5 through 8 has tons of stuff there about that. If you jump to Romans 12, um, kind of Romans 1 through 8, a lot of the theology, a lot of the um, kind of Holy Spirit stuff. Romans 9 through 11, in many ways, is about the problem of evil. It's about philosophy. Some of you are really kind of angsty and you have a lot of doubts and you want to talk about the intellectual dimensions of faith, which is absolutely fine. Then when you get to Romans 12, it starts with, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a very famous two verses. Do not be conformed to this world, rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's the lead into Romans 12 through 15, which today we would uh, sum up with a word like ethics. And so some of you are primarily looking for, is this church involved in the right things going on in the world? Are you activists in the right way? Do you hold the right moral positions? Are you supporting the right causes? Are you denouncing the wrong ones? All of which is legitimate. 
But today, and I hope that we hold Orthodox beliefs, I hope that we um, are a church that is open to the Holy Spirit and wants to experience God emotionally and experientially, not just talk about him abstractly. I hope that we grapple with the hard philosophical issues. I hope that that we're committed to following Jesus in, in deed and not just in word and to be a church that's committed to justice and righteousness. But today, I want to point out something that, and this is why I think and if you have been a Christian or you've been looking for a church at any point in your life, you can probably resonate with me why looking at a church website is almost worthless when it comes to looking for a church, which is what it says on the church website can be one of 96 things. And yet when you show up in person, that says almost nothing about what you're going to experience. What kind of people are there? How do they greet me or welcome me? Is the tone friendly? Is it cold? Is it condemning? Is everybody kind of like in their holy huddle and kind of in their cliques where they just, if I'm not exactly like them, then I'm just not going to fit in here. And that probably as much as anything else, if not more, is what makes or breaks a church. And that's what Romans 16 is about, the actual way that we do community together, the way we know each other's names. So again, if you have a name tag on, we will not do that the next 51 weeks, but it's just a symbolic way of talking about knowing each other's names. Whatever else Romans 16 shows is that in the early church, to be a part of the church was to know a lot of names. And I think that if you become a part of neighborhood church, I certainly think that if you're already part of a na of neighborhood church, that we are a church where we know each other's names. I'm, I'll talk later about some of our practices by which we try to be intentional about that, try to preserve that. Um, this is also a way to set up two things that are coming this fall. One is I already mentioned we're going to go through Philippians, but we're not just going to go through Philippians. We're going to go through Philippians probably with the major emphasis being on friendship, which I think is what Philippians is about. Philippians is a letter of friendship. So we're going to talk a lot about what does it mean to cultivate friendship with one another as we now share this new reality in Christ. The other thing is that we're going to, Lord willing, start small groups this fall. And small Small groups are a place where if you started coming to Neighborhood Church six months ago, if you became part of Neighborhood Church like Stephen Romeo here 30 plus years ago, um, you can see this is no longer a church and there's good things about this, but there's also bad things about this where you can walk into the Sunday morning gathering and get to know most of the people in the first couple of weeks. And so we now need small groups in order to be a church where we still know each other's names, where we still know each other's stories. By the way, for the sake of time, I won't work through a lot of the details that are here, but if you go back and you read Romans 16 on your own later on. And I hope that's something that you'll do is that you'll go back after this service, whether later today, this week, sometime in the near future, and you'll take another look at this and just see how fantastic it is. Once you're able to connect the dots, I want you to notice how many implicit stories are in this chapter. Paul not just doesn't just mention Prisca, who's a woman, and Aquila, who's the husband, which by the way, if you have ever read the New Testament, if you grew up in the church, and if you haven't, that's absolutely okay. This is a couple that shows up a lot in the New Testament. They show up multiple times in the book of Acts. Paul mentions them in other letters like 1 Corinthians, and here they are front and center in verse 3 in Romans 16. And every single time they appear, the wife's name is first and the husband's name is second, which is unheard of in the ancient world and almost certainly signifies something, whether she's the one in ministry and he's the one who's the tent maker supporting her, or whether she's just the more gifted one in the church as a teacher or whatever, but she's always first. And what's interesting is that the one thing you learn about them here in verse 4, is that Paul says they once risked their necks for my life. That's a story right there. Did that happen in, in Ephesus? 
Did that happen in Corinth? Is that literally like they did something for Paul that put them at risk of being executed in the Roman Empire? Is that just a euphemism like we would use today of just they sacrificed and they lost a lot? But whatever it is, there's a story here. And the people whose names you remember in your life are people that you have gone through things with, are people that you have experienced profoundly important, good and bad, fun and hard things. And this is a church that knows each other's names. And so in the weeks and months to come, I hope that one thing we might do is hold up Romans 16 before our eyes and use it as a bit of a litmus test for, is this, is this a good description of us? In what ways do we need to grow into this? How, how can this guide us? How can this inspire us towards being a church like this? And so all I want to do for the next couple of minutes, and let me actually switch this lest I get shorter, like a Junwa did. Um, what I want to do for the next few minutes is just point out some of the obvious features of this chapter, but that are easy to miss. And so here is the first thing I want to point out, which is that there is one main command in this chapter, and it shows up a couple of dozen times, which is greet one another, welcome one another. You cannot do that if you don't know each other's names. You will not do that if you don't care about each other. You will not do that if you don't see each other regularly. Notice that before almost every single person's name, you see it in verse two with Phoebe. She's the first person that's mentioned, by the way, again, is a woman. There are a little less than 30 names mentioned in Romans 16. And about, I think, exactly nine of them are women. And five of them, five of the women are explicitly described as being involved in ministry, which we'll talk about later on. These are important women in the church in Rome. And the first one is Phoebe, who actually is not a part of the church of Rome. From verse three, all the way down to verse 16, every name Paul mentions is there in Rome. Some of you might know this. It's not super important now. Paul has never been to this church in person. Paul didn't found it. He has never even visited it. According to church tradition, Paul will be executed in this city about a decade later, but he has never yet been there to this church. But everybody from verse three to verse 16 is somebody who's in Rome, but that's not true for the first person mentioned. Phoebe in verse one, Phoebe comes from Kenkra, which is a seaport right next to Corinth. And if you've ever read the New Testament or Paul's letters, you know, he wrote two letters called first Corinthians and second Corinthians. He's in Corinth when he writes this letter. And what is almost certainly true about Phoebe is that she's not only a leader in the church in Corinth, but she is carrying the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome. She is the letter bearer. And Paul sends her with the letter to this church he's never been to. And the first thing he says to the church is welcome her in a way that is worthy of the saints. And by the way, some point um, during our Philippians series, we'll talk about this. But jump back to the passage that Ajunwa opened us up with, Romans 15. I want you to look at Romans 15. This will actually be our benediction at the end of this service. In a few minutes, we always like to end with a benediction, a good word that we send each other out with. And chapter 15, verse 7 says, therefore, welcome one another just as, comparison, Christ has welcomed you into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. Go back to chapter 14, verse 1. All of 14, 1 down to 15, 7 is one long section about how you relate to people that you're different from in the church. People who look at the world differently than you do. People who believe different things. People who come from different backgrounds. And it starts the same way it ends in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, who looks at things differently, even with respect to faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. That is, give him a fake welcome. But just so that as soon as he gets his foot in the door, you convince him you're right and he's wrong. 
Don't welcome each other like that. That's not how Jesus welcomed us. And so all of chapter 14 and the beginning of 15 is about being a church that welcomes each other as Christ has welcomed us. And then going back to chapter 16, Paul sends Phoebe with a letter from Corinth to Rome, a dangerous journey in the ancient world, let alone for a woman. And the first thing he tells the church is welcome her. And then the rest of the chapter is greet, welcome each other. And so this is the first thing I want to encourage us to have our eyes on, especially if you've been a neighborhood church for a while, or if you're wondering, is this a church I want to be a part of, is let's be a church that greets one another, that knows each other's names. A lot of us know, and a lot of us have experienced it's a little more exacerbated in a city like New York, but it is endemic to the modern world in a particular way. It is universal in a fallen world among human beings, which is that loneliness is a profoundly hard thing to walk through your life experiencing. Um, the former Surgeon General of the United States of America under Barack Obama, Obama wrote in a 2017 piece in Harvard Business Review that as he gets older and as he continues to work with health issues in the American population, that he thinks loneliness is up there with cancer and diabetes in terms of the health risk it poses to our culture. Because because loneliness is increasingly the norm. We connect to each other transactionally. We connect to each other over social media. But having a community where your name is known, where you are greeted and welcomed. And no, like, like me simply looking at Chris and saying, Chris, that's not a greeting. A greeting is with affection. A greeting is come on in and let's relate to each other with some real level of intimacy. It's an invitation for something to start and to continue. And so I mentioned this a, a minute ago, but many Christians or, or people who are interested in Christianity weigh a church by what it believes, which is important. I'm not saying that you don't consider that or weigh a church by what kind of activities it's involved in, what kind of service you can do or weigh a church by the kind of music or the personality of the pastor or whatever, or the ethnic makeup of the congregation. But one thing we don't consider enough is what is the culture of our church? What is the culture of our church? And a guy named Ray Orland, who I really like, wrote this. What is gospel culture? It is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. It's the corporate incarnation of the biblical message of God's grace for sinners in the relationships, in the vibe, in the feel, in the tone, in the values, the priorities, the aroma, the honesty, the freedom, the gentleness, the humility, the cheerfulness, indeed the total human reality of a church that has been defined and sweetened, what a great verb, by the gospel. Why does this matter? Why must our churches preach not only true biblical doctrine, and but also embody gospel culture simultaneously by God's grace? Because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity or commitment to the right causes in the world. It also requires relational beauty in our communities. And then he says this, and you have all seen this and experienced it in one way or another. It is possible sincerely to preach true doctrine while at the same time, we utterly deny the truth of that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. Every church culture is communicating something. If a church is not positively communicating the gospel, both by what it says and by what it is, and here's the, the line, then that church risks unsaying by its relational quality what it says. I'm going to I'm going to change it here by what it says on its website. We can unsay with the way we relate to each other what we claim we believe. And that's what Romans 16 holds up before us, a church where we greet one another. 
Um, so for instance, let me point this out. And, and I'm guessing most of you are not from New York City. Most of you will probably not be in New York City in 10 or 15 years, although I hope you all are. I would love for you all to spend the rest of your lives here, but we'll see. And because of that, here's something I want you to know. Some of you in this room have known me for 15 years. Some of you, this is the first time you've ever seen me. Others of you have known me for a couple of years. Others of you have known me for five or 10 years. Here's something that apart from my wife, Helen, and my son's Taekwondo and Ernest, who are both in here somewhere, I think it might be true that not a single person in this room knows the name of my dad and my mom. Could you tell me the name of my dad and the name of my mom? My dad's name was Charles Nowak. He died on Labor Day a year ago, just a little over a year ago. My mom's name was Rebecca Hoagland before she got married to my dad. And she died almost 20 years ago when she was only 52 years old. And they come from, let alone, do you not know my parents' names? Does anybody here know my grandparents' names? <laughs> All of whom have been gone for a long time. Charles Nowak Sr. on my dad's side, Irish and Slavic. Margaret Huffman, Russian on my dad's side, his parents. On my mom's side, George uh, George Hoagland. By the way, I rarely broadcast this. I would never put this on my name tab, but my middle name is George. Oh. <laughs> I like I like Nick, but George, I, I hide that one. So my grandfather on my mom's side was George Hoagland, which is a Dutch name. And this church was pastored by a Dutch last name for a long time. Some of which those names are still here in our church. Praise God. Hoagland is a Dutch name. And on my mom's side, her mother, Bertha, not again, kind of like narcissist, not a name you see a whole lot anymore. Bertha Nagy, Hungarian. And here's the reason it is not a bug. It is a feature that you don't know my parents' names or my grandparents' names, which is in the life, in the, in the values of the modern world, I am a winner. I live in New York City and I pastor a church in Manhattan. I went to college and I got a degree. I have a graduate degree. I did campus ministry for 10 years at Harvard University. I did ministry with grad students at Columbia University for five years. By almost any account, I am a winner in the way our culture looks at things. And because of that, in our culture, the more you win at the path that our culture sets before you, the more likely it is that barely anybody knows your story who's around you because you have left your roots. You have left the communities you come from in order to pursue what success looks like in our culture. Very few of us are known very deeply by many people around us, especially if we're single, especially if we're married but without kids, especially if we're far away from where we grew up. Very few of us, our names are known very deeply beyond just the actual sound of it to other people. And again, that's a feature, not a bug of our world. Helen and I watched this recently. Many of you have probably seen this. You can check it out on YouTube if you don't know it. There's something called the still face experiment, which is pretty famous. You can see it on YouTube. And it's about childhood development and about really how we are related to and whether we're greeted by other people. And it is basically an experiment where a sociologist or a psychologist puts a mom with her infant, maybe three months old, but maybe three months old, something like that, maybe six months old, very, very young, puts a, puts a mom with her infant in a room. And the mom is just playing with the infant, paying attention, showing affection, great tone of voice, doing funny, goofy facial expressions. And the infant is just delighted. And then all of a sudden, the doctor, the psychologist, the sociologist gets a sign. And the mom kind of turns around. And when she turns back, her face is completely still. 
And she makes no facial expression at all. She makes no movements. And she's just staring at her baby's face. And at first, the baby kind of giggles like, oh, is this a new game? But very quickly, the baby becomes uncomfortable. Very quickly, it senses something is wrong. Very quickly, it begins going through a whole implicit range of new strategies to get the mom to begin greeting her again or greeting him again and doing this. And, and what it's pointing out is, is one writer puts it this way, that the first human quest is always for recognition, to be known and greeted by another human being. Kurt Thompson is a great Christian psychologist, and I'll quote him at times in my sermons in the future, and he has this great line that I think about a lot when he says, the great drama, the greatest drama for each of us is that we come into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. We come into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. And if that doesn't happen early on in life, if a face is absent, a lot goes wrong in the rest of your life. We know that now from childhood development. If a face is absent or if there's a face there, but it is turned upon you in anger, in cruelty, in violence, in indifference, in bitterness, in condemnation and criticism, the, the disasters that happen in the decades to come are almost impossible to avoid. They can be healed by God's grace, but they cannot just be shoved down. They cannot be ignored. If we come into the world and there is not a face looking for us, greeting us, everything goes wrong. Part of what it means to say that as Christians, this is a basic Christian confession, that we live in a fallen world is to say that because of our sin, God's face is hidden from us. And so this is for another time and another place, but arguably the medicine for us as human beings, the thing that most ails us, the thing that, that we're all doing on a regular basis that's most catastrophic in our lives, the biblical word for it is idolatry is you're trying to feel alive through something that God created because you can't feel alive through God. Idolatry is the universal human coping mechanism for the hiddenness of God. We were made to see the face of God and to see it shining upon us with favor, with light, with embrace, with delight. And in a fallen world, his face is hidden from us. Anselm in the 11th century, is a thousand years ago, says this at the beginning of one of the great books in Christian history is called the Proselogion, a word before. Um, and he says this, it's a prayer. I have never seen you, O Lord, my God, and I do not know what you look like. What almost high Lord shall this person do me? who is in exile far away from you? What shall your servant do, anxious in his love of you and cast out far away from your face? I pant to see you and your face is too far from me. I long to come to you, but your dwelling place, it is inaccessible. He is, I am eager to find you, but I do not know your place. I desire to seek you, but I do not know what your face looks like. And then listen to these last two lines. Lord, you are my God and you are my Lord, and yet I have never seen you. I, I was created to see you, and I have not yet done that which I was made for. Everything else that goes wrong in a human life is derivative out of that. Part of what the church is here to be is the place where faces are seen and greeted on behalf of God. What it means to be a human being, what it means to be a Christian, is to bear the image of God, that if God is no longer visible, 
literally because of our sin, we are supposed to be the image of God. And so a person's well-being now in a fallen world is largely dependent on how those around them greet them. And again, Kurt Thompson says, the greatest drama for each of us is that we come into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. That I hope is what we will have been and what we will continue to be and grow into more, that we would be a church that when people come in, we're looking for them. We're paying attention and we're greeting them. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. I'll be shorter with a couple of these, which is that um, it's very easy to miss this because one, we still use this language today in a hundred different kinds of contexts, but we don't mean it the way they did, which is somebody walks in and you go, hey, bro. And we use what a scholar would call fictive kinship language for people that we are not related to. And Romans 16 is filled with fictive kinship language. Paul says, Rufus, your mom, she's my mom too. Rufus is not Paul's brother. Rufus's mom is not Paul's mom. He calls them beloved. By the way, at the end of the chapter um, or, or midway through the chapter in verse 18, right when he ends the greetings to the people in Rome, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. If you've ever read the New Testament, you know that that's a command that is in a lot of letters. And it kind of sounds weird. Like if we did that today, we'd really like be awkward and we would. We shouldn't do that. But we're also like, that's kind of creepy. Like, that's what like villains do in Europe in movies. You know, like, like greedy children with a holy kiss. Here's something I want you to know about the ancient world. This is not, not only not romantic, but it's also not universal. The only people you greet with a holy kiss are your siblings and your parents. And so what Paul is implicitly saying is relate to each other the way a family relates to each other. I suspect that one of the reasons when we read the New Testament, we read the Bible, and we then look at the way we live our lives as Christians, we go, oh, that's a profound difference. This doesn't feel like the book of Acts. This doesn't feel like Romans 16 is because we are trying to pull off the Christianity thing, either in a lone ranger kind of way. I follow Jesus. I read my Bible. I pray. I believe the right things. I seek God. Or insofar as we include others in that, we relate to each other as a voluntary association or an extracurricular activity. It's kind of like joining the chess club or intramural basketball in college, um, right? Like it's, it's great, you can enjoy it a lot, but it is on the periphery of your life. And there are clear boundaries for we there. If you go to the chess club and you have a great time playing chess, you're happy. If you play intramural basketball, if you're part of the film club and you watch a great independent movie and you watch, it's great. But if somebody says, hey, I lost my job last month, can you help me pay the rent? All of a sudden you say, dude, this is the chess club. You're crossing a boundary here. One of the reasons you see the early Christians do radical things that are unimaginable to us is that they actually meant brother and sister when they said it. Um, we'll talk about this in the months to come. There's a passage in Philippians on this. In the early church, you see, and, and because of this, there is often a debate today in our divided society. Were the early Christians capitalists? Were they socialists? Were they communists? And the reason that question is always misguided is that when in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, you see Christians selling their own property to give to people that they are not related to who are struggling in poverty. That's obviously not a group of venture capitalists right there, but it's also not a group of socialists. It's entirely voluntary and it's driven by a sense of bonding is what's going on there is it's a family. And the reason we don't do that today is whatever our relationship is to each other in the church is when we use bro and sister language, we really are fictive kinship. A church that is a church is a church that is actually like 
of family. It's not peripheral. It's not passive. It's not transactional. Many church services, I've often said this, I will say it a lot in the years to come, many church services, and which is really the only time that you do anything at church. You come to the church service for an hour and a half on Sunday. A lot of church services in Western culture are functionally no different than watching a mini TED Talk on YouTube and going to a musical concert. And that's not what Romans 16 is depicting. It's depicting something participatory, something relational, something transformative. By the way, if, if you're new to our church, one of the many reasons I would love for you to come back next week is next week, September 18th, we are going to receive about 20 new members into our, into our family, into our church. And as I've been meeting with all of them one-on-one, -on -one, one of the main things I've been talking about is to be a part of neighborhood church is to be a part of a family. It really is. It's not to join a club. It's not to be part of an extracurricular activity. Activity, it is to join a family. And so I want you to notice that in this passage, the way people relate to each other is the way people relate to siblings, to parents, and to children. And what would it look like for us in our context to do that? Third thing, very quickly, if you read the chapter, you'll notice that about seven or eight times, the verb that Paul uses after he says, greet this person is because they worked hard with me. They labored for the Lord. Work labor language is all over here. And in the New Testament, that's almost certainly ministry language. Not that they're full-time pastors like me and this is where they're getting a job, but in the sense that they are active in serving the body of Christ. They are active in seeing what the needs of other people are spiritually, materially, emotionally, relationally, and meeting those needs. Here's something that I noticed in almost 15 years of being a campus minister. Anytime you talk about gender, it's dangerous because it's a confusing subject in our culture, but also because there's a lot of stereotypes. There's a wide spectrum on gender. But in general, here's something I noticed over the last 15 years, working with boys and girls, working with young men and women in, in ministry. If you put a group of women together in a small group in a Bible study, and you put them face to face, and you ask them to get get to know each other and get involved in each other's lives, they will do a lot better than the men will. They will do a lot better than the men will. They will attach to one another. They will talk about deep things going on with each other, and they will bond face-to-face. -face. Now, that also makes their relationships much more dramatic on average than male friendships, but nonetheless, they will bond. If you put 10 guys who are 22 years old in a circle and say, stare into each other's eyes and talk about how you're feeling, none of them will come back next week. <laughs> Instead, what you do with guys is say, hey, like there's this heavy thing. Let's go out and throw it at each other. Or like, let's go out and do stuff together and get shoulder to shoulder. And if guys are shoulder to shoulder, they will bond with each other better on average than when they're face to face. I'm just going to say this right now. Romans 16 depicts a community that knows how to do face to face and shoulder to shoulder, not just one or the other. All of us are a little more comfortable with one of those than the other. Um, Romans 16 is a church that knows how to do face-to-face, -face, greet each other, but also shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder, um, work and labor together. Romans 16 very clearly depicts people who have suffered together and sacrificed together, people who have risked and lost and gone through tragedy together, people who have celebrated, people who have broken bread in each other's homes, people who have soon seen lives transform their own and others, and those experiences have bonded them together indelibly in the face-to-face -face and the shoulder-to-shoulder function side by side in this church. And that needs to be us too, that we do want to be face to face on a regular basis. We'll do that later when we go back to our church for lunch. We also want to serve together one another, the city around us, the world. Here's the fourth one. And I'll, I'll end with, with what this shows. Romans 16 is easy to misunderstand or not be 
you know, amazed by for lots of reasons. But probably the main reason is that the names don't mean much to us today because they're not our names. But one of the things that you notice about the Roman Empire, for those of you who are interested in history, is the Roman Empire had a lot of similarities. Or let's put it this way. Our culture has a lot of similarities to the Roman Empire. Wealth, violence, racism, um, profound technological advances, dominance over the rest of the world, being the center of the world, a lot of similarities. But one of the most obvious differences between the Roman Empire and our culture is the Roman Empire was not sentimental. We are a sentimental culture. We hide from ourselves what's actually going on with respect to our practices with money, our practices of our history of racism, our, a lot of our practices sexually and, and what that leads to in families and in individual lives. We constantly dress up what is actually going on in our culture and try to make it sound better than it is. The Roman Empire was almost... Um, um, refreshingly so incredibly unsentimental. Whatever they were doing, they were acknowledging it. And one of the ways you see that is in the practice of naming people. The way people were named in the Roman Empire was very clear. We get the word person, and, and Andy Crouch said this about the Roman Empire and says it's a way that our culture is similar today. The Roman Empire was a great place if you're interested in power. It was not a great place to be a person. And the word person in English comes from literally the Latin word persona, which in the Roman Empire was a legal term first. A persona was someone who actually had the rights of a human being before the law, and a minority of the human beings in the Roman Empire were persons. I would argue a minority of the people in Western culture are persons in many, many ways today. And a person was usually always a man. Usually the husband and father, the paterfamilias of a household, women were not persons, children were not persons, people who have been defeated from other nations and cultures and brought here in, in slavery were not persons, and conservatively, there's a lot of debates over this, but conservatively, 20 to 25% of the Roman Empire was enslaved, and if you think that's old news, at the very least, the way we can live today in, the, in Western culture is unimaginable apart from slavery. We cannot live the way we do without the benefit of slavery, if not here, at least around the world. And what you see in Romans 16 is a list of names that are coming from all over the place on the map. Some of them are Jewish. Some of them are Gentile. Some of them are high status. Some of them are low status. Some of them are rich, some are poor. Some of them are slave names. Actually, a lot of them are slave names. Some of them are free names. And again, I, I mentioned this, the Roman Empire was very unsentimental in its tribalism and its violence and its aspirations. But one of the ways you see that is in the way they did names. If somebody was coming into the world, born into a slave family or born into a poor family, you didn't even bother to give them the name of a person because they were never going to be a person. And so instead, you would name them according to their birth order. Third, fourth, fifth, tertius, quartus, quintus. Names you probably remember from movies like Gladiator. Third, fourth, fifth. Or maybe just a very straightforward name like useful. And the Greek word for useful is Onesimus, who is a major character in the New Testament. A whole letter is written about a slave named Onesimus, which is not the name of a person. It's the name of a function. It's the name of a thing being useful to somebody else. And what you see in this passage is that all of these people from different backgrounds who in the world then, just as in the world now, who would normally never come together, let alone be a family together. I want to say one last thing about this, and then I'll, I'll move on and wrap it up. I think it's true. Feel free to, to come up to me afterwards and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong on this. Most of the great injustices and evils in human history, both then and now and everywhere else, 
racism for us in our country, white supremacy for a long time, abortion, sexual um, trafficking, sexual abuse, um, radical poverty in the midst of profound wealth and a growing wealth disparity, the violence of empires every day on the news, we're watching what Russia is doing to Ukraine, colonialism, lack of basic medical care for human beings because they don't have insurance because they can't afford it. What you see in all of these forms of injustice is at the very least this, a failure to recognize as persons those who are made in the image of God. At the heart of injustice is the failure to greet those who are persons as persons, and instead to see them as an obstacle to become overcome. If I let this person in the room, if I let them in my life, they will keep me from the style of life I want to have. Or as a means to an end, I could use you, think of the hookup culture today, I could use you as a means to my gratification, but I will leave you worse. I will make no promises, no commitments. I will not seek to serve you the way I will seek to be served by you. And Andy Crouch puts it this way, that the restoration of culture and the renewal of the world always begins with the recognition of personhood. And we live in a world today that if you have eyes to see, our culture does not do a good job at recognizing personhood in a thousand different ways, just like in the Roman Empire. And we see a church here that knows each other's names, that greets each other in Christ. And, and there are a lot of things. It is hard for a church to come together across racial lines. It is hard today. If some of you walk into this room, you might be asking, are there any crazy Trump fanatics in this church? And if there are, I'm not coming back. Some of you might be, are there any crazy liberals in this church who think Obama and AOC are amazing? If so, this is a sketchy church. And that will become, not being in Christ, but those things will become the thing that you look to bond with each other or separate from each other on. You could argue that socioeconomic status in education is as hard a line to breach and a division to breach today as other ones are. Over the years, I've noticed with these algorithms that all the big tech companies and the internet have on us today, that I'll see living in New York City, living in Boston, there's an advertisement that has shown up hundreds of times at the bottom of my computer screen in the last 10 years. And it always goes something like this, depending on what neighborhood I'm living in, and they always know what neighborhood I'm living in somehow, is it says, dating for highly educated singles in Astoria, Queens. Dating for highly educated singles, which is, I went to Harvard. I have a grad degree. I have a PhD. I'm not going to date a high school dropout. I'm not going to marry a blue collar guy who's fixing cars over there. That we are snobs when it comes to socioeconomic status. We are incredible snobs. And what you see is racial differences, gender differences, socioeconomic differences. When you look at Jesus's 12 disciples, one of the few things we know about each of them is the political orientation they came from. And they're all over the map. Zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, and they're all called to something other than what they were before. But here's what I want you to notice with respect to diversity. At the end of Romans, if I asked you, and you had grown up in church, you've gone to Sunday school, or you had read the New Testament, and I asked you, who wrote the letter of Romans? Almost all of you would say Paul, and you'd be wrong. Look at the end of Romans 16, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius wrote this letter on Paul's behalf. And if you remember what I told you earlier, this is the name of a slave, at the very least of a man who was born into slavery. I, third, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And now he is in Corinth 
a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, in the house of Gaius and Erastus, who are big names and really wealthy. And then the last person who's named, verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church. We actually know who Gaius and he greets you, and Erastus, the city treasurer. We know who both of them are from outside of the New Testament. They were such big names. They were so wealthy. They became Christians that they are recorded in the annals of Roman history. And they're hosting Paul in Corinth as he writes this letter. And in the same room as Gaius and Erastus, two incredibly rich Gentiles, is in a Jewish apostle who has been imprisoned and tortured multiple times, and a guy named Tertius who's writing the letter, and his brother Quartus, fourth, greets you in the Lord. This is an unlikely cast of characters to be hanging out together. This is not who hung out with each other in the Roman world. One of my favorite facts is not 100% short speculative, but a guy named Ignatius in 95 AD, maybe 40 to 50 years later, wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, which is still around in 95 AD, and he mentions the name of their bishop. And it's a really interesting name that we've heard before. And the name of the bishop of Ephesus in 95 AD is Onesimus. Born into slavery, useful, now the pastor of the church in Ephesus. The way the church lives and does community together is very different than the way the world does. And so I want, you, I want to leave you with, with two challenges. One is to push past something that will probably be uncomfortable in neighborhood church. There's a lot of things uncomfortable about this church. <laughs> the pastor's nerdy and dorky. Um, if you're a little older, it's, uh, it's going to be harder to get plugged in here than if you're in your 20s and 30s. Um, the, the, depending on who you are, there will be more challenges. But here's something I've seen over the years, and I want to leave you with this kind of a theory. If you walk into a church or any kind of human community, to the degree that there is homogenous monotony in the age of the people in the room, we're all 25, we're all elderly and retired, we're all married with kids, and, and that's the stage of life we're in, to the degree that everybody is basically the same in their racial or cultural makeup. Our skin is the same. We all speak the same language. We all eat the same kind of food. We all watch the same kind of stuff on TV or socioeconomically. We all have great college degrees and grad degrees, or we're all high school dropouts or um, children of immigrants, whatever it is, or we all vote this way. We all vote that way to the degree that everybody in the room when you walk in and they greet you for the first time is already pretty similar to each other and similar to you. I can tell you two things about what your experience of that community will be like in the years to come. The first is that the ground floor is pretty high. And what I mean by that is that your experience in the first six months will be really positive. It'll be easy. It'll be fun. It'll feel like there's a lot of rewards right away. People see me. There's not awkward moments. I don't have to try very hard. I can just naturally wait. And here's the other thing that I will tell you. Apart from an intervention miracle of God, Three years later, almost all of you will be very similar spiritually to where you were on day one. Because what you will do, apart from the grace of God, is you'll begin relating to each other on the things you already share in common and not what is ultimately important, which is being in Christ. If you come into a community, and we are not the most diverse community, but we are diverse and certainly more so than, than many people want to be a part of, here's the opposite too, which is I suspect for a lot of you, your first six months in neighborhood church will include a lot more pain, a lot more difficulty, and a lot more awkwardness than in a church that you self-select where everybody looks like you. The first six months will have a lot of rough bumps. The first six months, you'll have to push through awkwardness. You'll have to say, I'm committed to this, even though it doesn't feel super exciting right now to be hanging out with these people over here. 
But here's the other thing I can tell you. If by the grace of God, you become part of our community, you choose to do that, three years from now, you will be very different than you are now. Because the people you follow Jesus with around you are not going to be people who necessarily have a lot in common with you. And that will force us, like in Romans 16, to be a family that literally the little phrase in Christ is the only thing we have in common, other than being humans and other than being sinners. And that is... I think worth aspiring to. And so what I'm going to do after I pray is we usually do the Lord's table, the Lord's supper every week. We're not going to do that today just to introduce the church a bit. But let me, um, as I transition into this, talk about a couple of practices that we do or that we aspire to do that I think resonate with what Romans 16 shows us of the church. Here is one. Every week, almost without exception, we go back to our own building, a block and a half down the street. I would encourage you, if you are new to our church and you're considering getting involved here, don't skip out as soon as the service is over and avoid what will be much more awkward probably for you of coming back to our building and being in a tight space and being around a lot of people who have different personalities and that you don't know well. Come there and be greeted and greet one another. And one of the things that we have done a lot in the last year that I think everybody that's been around this church for a while would say has been really fun and really rich. We won't do it this week just because we're going to do lunch and we're just going to hang out and greet each other. But next Sunday, we'll start it again, which is that we go back, we grab some snacks, and within 20 or 30 minutes, we put two people in chairs in front of the room. One person who's been in the church for a long time, another person who hasn't been around for very long. And we ask each of them to share their stories, not their testimonies. Not how they became Christians, although they can share that as part of it, but just who are your parents? Where did you grow up? What's it like to be you? Why are you in New York City? What are you hopeful for and fearful of in the future? And we just get to know each other's stories. And then if you're an introvert, I know this will freak you out. But after each person shares for maybe five to six minutes, then everybody else can just ask them any questions they want to get to know them better. And it's awkward. And it's weird. And it's one of the ways that we have gotten to know each other's names and gotten to know how to greet each other in the church. We're going to start small groups this semester, this uh, this year, this fall, because we want to do that. Here is one of our more, I think, unique and interesting commitments as a church. I I've been the pastor here about a year and a half. This predates me by a long time, but I share it, and I love this commitment. And it might be fantasy. We might never get here, but we have a commitment as a church that we will never get bigger than about 250 people. Because once you get bigger than that, certain things can never happen again. At that point, you are, whether you like it or not, a TED Talk and a music concert. Maybe there's great small groups, but you are no longer, you can no longer be anything like a Roman 16 church where people know each other's stories. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for bigger churches, but we believe that what we're called to be cannot happen at a certain size. And so if we ever, by God's grace, got to 250 people or somewhere around there, we would do one of two things. We would hopefully have another pastor on staff by then who would take 40 or 50 of you, and it wouldn't happen overnight. It would be, you know, a lot of ramp up and would go plant Neighborhood Church of Chelsea or Neighborhood Church of Long Island City. And that church would be committed to never getting better in 250. Or if we're not ready to do that responsibly, we would ask 20 or 30 of you who know each other's names really well, who are involved in each other's lives, who have risked their necks for each other, who have gone through and worked and labored hard and say, hey, there's a small church over in this neighborhood and it's faithful, but it's struggling a bit. Why don't you go over there and just love them and support them and give them a little extra energy? But what we're not going to do is just keep growing. I have a friend who likes to say, as much as Americans wish it was true, it simply isn't true that good things do not scale large. 
And so we are committed to being a church where we can actually know each other's names, where if you're here and if you're participating, you can actually be a part of something that looks like a family and that looks like Romans 16. So let me encourage you, read Romans 16 from time to time and ask yourself, is this what we look like? And if not, how can we move towards that? Let me pray. And then we'll talk a little about who we are at Neighborhood Church.